So the title for this evening's talk, perhaps not surprisingly, A Passion for Being Awake. One of the um, times I returned from Asia to the West, um, to England in this case, uh, I was, I think, very focused in my practice, very uh, disciplined and determined, and uh, perhaps looking not dissimilar to some of the ways that um, we might see each other walking around this meditation centre, with sort of the eyes down and looking very sort of serious, perhaps. And I was staying with a friend, and this friend had a flatmate who was a um, an Austrian woman. She was a dancer, and I remember after I'd been there not that many days and perhaps rather full of my um, enthusiasm for practice but nonetheless rather serious uh, she she asked me uh, quite uh, challengingly I think uh, as I remember she she asked me where is the passion in what you're doing she's a very passionate and um, uh, beautifully fiery person and as some of you may have even reflected yourself looking around um, in the meditation hall or as people walk slowly and hopefully mindly, mindfully, though we might sometimes wonder if it's mindlessly up and down given the rather sort of obvious lack of any expression coming out from the face or the body. We might wonder, where is the passion in all of this? And if we listen to the Dharma talks, if we um, read the, the teachings of insight meditation, the, the Buddhist teachings, we see there's so much talk on the quenching of passions on the ending of desire, on the coming to the end of seeking for anything at all. And we're told in no uncertain terms that this quenching of passion, this ending of desire, that this is the basis of our emancipation, our liberation from suffering, the end of the unsatisfactoriness in life. It's said that directly, that the cause of the end of suffering is the end of craving. It's that simple. The cause of suffering is craving, is desire, and the end of suffering is the end of that desire. And we might, having heard these talks and these teachings perhaps many times, and looking perhaps upon the the nuns and the monks, the monastics of the tradition, who seem to maintain a rather a rather sort of serious demeanour much of the time. They perhaps as a model of where this practice might be taking us might look you know, in a rather concerning way as though somehow the fire has gone out, the emotional life has come to an end. And we might see them as rather passionless and compare this to the ecstatics of other traditions, the, um, the Sufis and the Advaita masters and um, devotional practitioners who seem to be so full of joy and big smiles breaking across their face and perhaps seem to be so much more full of what we could relate to as a, as a passion, as a joy in life. And so this, this question arises, where is the passion in all of this? And my response at the time, I remember quite clearly, it, was, um, it almost startled me, it certainly startled um, my friend Eva, the dancer. Um, and what I replied when she asked that question was that my passion, and it was very clear to me, my passion was for the end of suffering, for the end of unsatisfactoriness in life, the end of bondage and limitation. And perhaps even more particularly, it was for the end 
or coming to the end of the, the situation we see where myself and where I see others around me continually engaging in ways of acting that caused myself and that caused others harm and other people equally engaging in those forms of behaviour and activity and that there was a real fire, a real enthusiasm in me for coming to the end of that, for understanding the end of that. And, and in this way I think we can see how the, the role of passion and practice is very important, is very significant and without an element of that passion in our practice we'll find it hard to sustain ourselves. In the, in the Pali, the language of the tradition, um, there's a word, chanda, which means spiritual passion, ardor and zeal, and that it, it expresses itself, the, the spiritual passion expresses itself as a, as a real love of freedom, as a valuing of freedom above all else, as a real heartfelt dis- desire for knowing what truth is, for that discovery of the deepest understanding. And, and as I've said, a passion for being awake, a real opening and moving of our heart towards what that might mean for us, awakening what that might mean for us, even if we don't know. Yet we might just sense that there's a possibility there and our heart is drawn towards that, even in its unknowing. And we ask of ourselves and of others, of our friends and our teachers, what is really important in life? What's really worthy of our spiritual passion? And we need to ask this question. It's important. To see and to really be clear in ourselves that the end of unsatisfactoriness, the end of limitation and of separation, and that the the realisation and the discovery of our true human potential. This, above all else, is worthy of our spiritual passion, is worthy of our enthusiasm and our ardour, our zeal. To discover the human birthright, the birthright of life, which is freedom. The Buddha, or in fact the word Buddha, means awakened one one who is awake. And if one seeks to follow and to explore the teachings of the Buddha, which we could call Buddhism, though I don't particularly go for the word myself, I I prefer a direct translation, which would be more like awakeism, being interested in what it means to be awake, being committed to that, that being a follower of the Buddha's teachings is a follower of the the teachings of awakening. And we see, perhaps as we come to explore this practice, that, that passion and desire, when they're not self-directed, when they're not sort of, in a way, contracted and just about getting something for me or for mine, when they're sort of more directed openly, outwardly, expansively towards the well-being of all, towards the discovery of that which liberates all of life, not just ourselves. But when they're directed in that way, they're not actually creative of harm, they're not generate, they, they, they don't generate suffering, they actually carry us forward along the way, they carry us on our spiritual journey. And really that the, 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 the way this expresses itself is an interest in being present, 
an interest in seeing just what is in front of us right now and what is so close to us in each moment. Our very experience and this capacity we have to see it, to be aware of it, to know it in each moment if we're awake in that moment. And yet, at the same time as we see this possibility, more and more deeply and perhaps painfully we're confronted with our habit and our tendency to actually expend our energy in pursuing this and avoiding that, in seeking after one thing and seeking to get rid of another, in the somehow deeply rooted and yet mistaken belief that this will bring us satisfaction, that this will bring us to a place of peace in our hearts and in our lives, that this will bring lasting satisfaction and happiness. And yet this running from the past, pursuing the future, chasing after this and running away from that, we've been engaged in it so long already. And if it was going to come to a satisfactory conclusion, wouldn't it have done so already? Wouldn't we have got there by now? Our heart, I believe we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't do this difficult work if our heart didn't realize in its depths that there was a possibility of something other than all of this. That it realizes that there's an understanding our possibility is not limited, is not confined or defined by our circumstances and that the different realities of our life, our day-to-day situation, do have an impact upon us clearly. And yet they are not in themselves capable of denying us our freedom and the depth of quality of life which is possible for us. When we sense this possibility, I think we start to sense, when we connect with our heart that knows this, we start to sense a degree of urgency because we realize this isn't just going to happen. We can't just go on the way we've always lived our life and hope against hope that somehow things will become different. We realize we need to engage with this. We need to engage our heart, our mind, our body, our spirit in this process, in this spiritual life. And, and that sense of urgency is also very powerful. There's a story from the Bhagavata in which this is the, uh, the ancient Indian text, Bhagavata, I always mispronounce it, in which Arjuna, who's the hero, uh, is speaking to Krishna, who represents wisdom in the, um, in the situation. And Arjuna asks Krishna, what is the greatest miracle? And Krishna replies, the greatest miracle is that while all around them people see others dying, they somehow believe it will not happen to themselves. This is the greatest miracle. And so we might just reflect on that reality in the context of a spiritual urgency, a spiritual passion. Are we living our life in the belief that somehow, despite the fact that every other life comes to an end, that somehow our own life will continue forever? We might know it in our mind that we will die one day. But how deeply do we live, do we live our life in that spirit? 
when we sense, when we connect with that reality of our mortality, there's a natural urgency and a, a rather effortless move to respond, to act, to attend to what we need to attend to. And we might imagine, perhaps, if we're sitting in meditation and we're feeling rather dull and tired in the mind, or it's rather uninterested and bored, not really present. And yet suddenly we realize that the meditation hall we're in was on fire. How quickly we'd be alert, how quickly we'd be present and focused and really interested in just what was happening right now. And just a moment it would take and that would happen. The Buddha once compared the failure to see the nature of our human condition and its urgency with children playing with their toys in a burning house. That we really need to ask the question, am I sleeping through my life? Am I merely playing with the toys of existence while the walls of the house are burning down? And so out of urgency, we, we, we find when we connect with that that there's energy available to us. Just like the energy that would have us out of this room in moments if it was on fire. Or out through the window if we had to. That energy, when it's there, to what end will we apply it? How will we make use of it? And this is equally important because what we find, sometimes when we connect with a sense of spiritual urgency, urgency in our life and, a, and a, a sense of passion for spiritual practice. What happens is that our mind and its habit and our tendency starts to just engage in more seeking of this and avoiding that. It might become sort of a bit more spiritual about it, seeking a more sort of spiritual experience or to avoid those unspiritual experiences like you know wandering minds or sort of difficult mind states and all of that. And that Yet, at the same time, what we do in our relationship to spiritual practice can be that we somehow project into the future. We, we seek for some hope of consolation somewhere other than where we are. And perhaps the, the concept of heaven, the afterlife, the, the pleasant place we're going to get to sometime other than now, is sort of like the, the archetypical way we, um, we project our satisfaction, our happiness into the future and seek it somewhere other than where we are right now. And that we see this tendency of wanting this, avoiding that, moving into the future, looking for something somewhere else. That this is the habit of our minds. That this is the tendency of our minds. And the Buddha spoke in this context of going against the stream of going against the stream, of actually turning away from that conditioned tendency of mind, from those conditioned habits of pursuing this and avoiding that, recognizing that they bring no ultimate satisfaction. And there's an old, I guess, proverb you would call it that states something along the lines of it's only dead fish which, only swim, which always swim with the tide sense that when we're not really alive we just go along with the, the habit of mind with the tide of life and yet we're asked to go against the tide 
What does that mean? Well, one of the things it means to go against that tide of conditioned habit, which we see, which we're confronted with moment to moment in our meditation, the tendency to want to dwell, to become lost, to space out into fantasy, or to wish for the next meal so we can have a pleasant sensation at last. So when we see that, we see that it actually requires quite a degree of energy, of effort, to, to be present. We need to actually bring forth our reserves, our, our, our inner fire, perhaps you could say. And yet doing so, we have to do it skillfully, we have to do it with wisdom. And there's a, a lovely story about Mullah Nasruddin, who's a Sufi teaching figure, who figures in many stories, and is both a wise man and an idiot. And um, sometimes can be found acting rather strangely, in order to wake us up, perhaps we might say. And in this situation, the mullah's on his hands and knees under a streetlight, as one of his friends comes past and says, Mullah, what are you doing? And Nasruddin replies, I'm searching for the key to my house. I've lost the house, the key to my house. And his friend says, oh, I'll help you. I'll help you look for it. And gets down on his hands and knees and together they search, search under the streetlight in the middle of the night. And after some time, it seems they've searched very carefully and Muller's still looking. And his friend says, Nazarudin, are you sure you lost your key out here? And Nazarudin replied, oh no, I lost it in my back garden, but the light is much better here. And we might just ask ourselves, if we, we tend to seek and search where it might seem most obvious, where it might be the most light, where we're perhaps more used to looking, and yet part of us perhaps knows that what we're looking for isn't actually there. But we might just think, oh, this is the easiest place to look, I'll do it here. And in a way, that's somewhat similar, perhaps very similar to the way we keep looking for more pleasant experiences or looking to get rid of the unpleasant thinking that somehow in that familiar territory we're going to find really the resolution of our spiritual search the discovery of that which we seek so we need to ask again as I've said and there's a lot of questions here we need to ask what is truly fulfilling? What is actually deeply satisfying to us and genuinely wholesome in our life, in our experience? And what we come to see, what we come to understand in our meditation practice, and very directly I think, is that it's not actually our contact with sensory or psychological experiences. It's not the particular thing that we're experiencing, whether it be a, a sight or a sound or a thought or emotion or a sensation in our body. It's not the particular thing that really makes the biggest difference. Whatever it is we're in contact with, much more significant to the quality of our experience, the quality of our being, is actually the relationship that we form with that experience. That the qualities of peace, of spaciousness, of acceptance and connectedness, these are not experiences in themselves, although they can be emotional states. They're much more qualities of the way we meet our experience. They're the kind of relationship we form with our experience. 
And what we see is that the experiences that come to us are not in our control. We can't determine the kind of thoughts that we're going to have. Otherwise we'd have already by now got rid of all the ones we don't like. We'd have all done it if we had a choice about that. We can't determine the kind of sensations that are going to arise 37 and a half minutes into the meditation. We just can't. It's not up to us. And yet we do have a choice about the relationship that we form to those experiences. Both those experiences that are pleasurable and joyful and those that are difficult and painful. Now, this choice that we do have is dependent upon our actually being present. Our actually being conscious in that moment the experience arises. Because when we're not conscious, we get carried away by our habitual and conditioned reaction to the experience. And we get caught up in grasping, in aversion, or disinterest and disconnection, dependent upon the feeling quality of the experience. So this is really quite important. That all the experiences, whatever they are, they're either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, which means basically neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And the habit of our mind, the conditioned tendency, is to seek, to keep, and to get more of the pleasant, grasping. To avoid and to get rid of the unpleasant, aversion. And to simply ignore and disconnect from the neutral. Now, when we're not awake, when we're not present in the moment that experience arises, we get caught in a habitual reaction of grasping, of aversion, or of disconnection. And in that reaction, we actually become separated from our experience. We become, in a way, disconnected from the vitality of what's actually happening. And in this we experience the suffering and the, the loss of vitality that can sometimes so characterize our life. And yet when we're present, when we're actually there, we do have an option. We can choose to recognize the arising of the aversion, the greed, or the disinterest in the neutral, and yet simply stay present. Simply observe that reaction too as just another experience without identifying with it, without grasping hold of that reaction and believing in it and believing the story that it tells us that I must get this to be happy or I must get rid of that in order to feel okay or that this neutral experience is offering me nothing. That's the story we hear. Maybe we don't even hear it, it's so quick and we're so used to believing in it. But when we're present, we actually have the opportunity to just be with the experience, to be intimate with it, just as it is. And yet, the tendency to dwell, to get caught up in the dwelling process that comes out of that reaction, when we identify with it, believe in it, or struggle with that reaction. When we do any of those things, we get caught up in the dwelling process. We get lost. We're not awake. We're not really alive in some ways. Because we get caught up in this, this sort of relentless barrage, it seems, of, of associations, of thoughts, of intentions, and and projections and and we find our sense of our consciousness becomes imprisoned by the experience because we've sort of grabbed hold of it and we're trying to do something with it in our mind and so we feel bound to it and there's a, a, a sense of, of of lack of 
of lack of freedom, lack of ease in that situation. We were bound to and constricted and contracted around our experience. That reaction of desire, of aversion and disinterest. If we don't see it, it leads to bondage. It leads to that loss of an authentic presence, of an authentic quality of being awake and alive. And we see that this habit is so strong, is so powerful. Because our whole sense of who we are, our whole understanding of what it means to be who we think we are, is bound up with that grasping hold of what I want, what I don't want, what I like, what I don't like, what I'm interested in, what I'm not interested in. That's how we define ourselves, that's how we make ourselves. And in some ways who we are is just a list and a collection of preferences and habits and particular qualities and conditions. So that when we start to let go of that tendency, it's actually very threatening to our sense of who we are. When we seek to not spend so much of our energy in that dwelling process, that conditioned process of attachment, aversion and disconnection, it's actually quite threatening to our sense of who we are. That sense of self, that identity, that structure that we experience as self, it reacts by actually becoming even more frantic in its desires to grab hold of something because it's threatened. And sometimes in our practice we might think we're going backwards because actually our mind is generating even more grasping and aversion than we've ever seen before. And yet that might not necessarily mean our practice is going backwards. It might mean that we're actually entering into realms which are perhaps more unfamiliar, perhaps slightly scary to parts of our being, and that they're reacting to that. And it's so painful when we're lost in that place of reactivity and grasping, that sense of self wanting this, not wanting that. We really feel the pain of that sometimes in meditation. We can't kid ourselves any longer that it's the experience to which we're reacting that's causing that pain. We really see it's the reaction itself, that craving, that aversion, that disconnection that really causes the the deep suffering that is there at times for us. And yet even when we recognize this, even when we've seen it clearly and plainly and we know it and perhaps we've even told other people about it, nonetheless we still find at times and perhaps many times that we do get caught up in that still. And it's in a way a recognition of the fact that the habit of the mind is deeply ingrained and that we may have spent our life generating habits and tendencies like grooves in the mind and that even when we're no longer supporting them they in a way have a life of their own still, a momentum of their own. And we still get caught many times in the dwelling, in the grasping and the aversion and the disconnection. That the power that they have has come through the repetition that they've been given when we were less clear about what they really were, when we didn't understand that they served us, that they didn't serve us. We've repeated these behaviours so many times. And yet each moment that we cultivate our capacity to let go, that we see what's occurring and we just let it be, 
And in this letting go doesn't mean getting rid of, it means letting go of our aversion, letting go of our grasping, letting go of the tendency to be disinterested in that which is neutral. That letting go, each moment, each time we do that, and then letting go, of course, where we come back to is the present, to just where we are. Because that's where we will be when we're not caught in grasping or aversion or disinterest. When we're there, we simply come back to where we are. And, And each time we do this, we're planting a seed. We're cultivating the capacity that we have that is there for us and the potency and the power that we can connect with for being present, for being awake, for being really authentically alive. That as we, as we do this, each time we remember to come back, even though we get lost a hundred times, a million times perhaps, each time we're strengthening that capacity that we have for being present, for letting go and for opening. And we, we connect with the, we start to sense that we don't have to be overwhelmed by that, that conditioned tendency of our mind. That over, although at times we are overwhelmed by it, we start to see that it doesn't always have to be this way. Slowly, in a way, the light starts to become clearer for us. We understand the way forward. And then we start to connect with the, the potential that is there for us for profound transformation of our heart and our mind, of our consciousness and our very being. And on a, on a level of practice, it's sort of the, in a way the, the mechanics one could say of meditation in the formal situation and equally in daily life circumstances, being awake, What that really means is to be aware of what is happening right now and to accept that this is what is happening right now. Not accepting in a passive way of just sort of sitting back and letting it all be done to oneself, but just accepting that in this moment this is how things are and that any response to that can come, but comes from a place of that acceptance, not a place of struggle. So seeing, being aware of what is occurring accepting, opening to just that which is occurring and not taking it personally. Seeing how our tendency is to use the experience that is occurring for us as the basis for measuring, for evaluating, for defining who we are. For saying whether we're good or bad, successful or failures, whatever it might be. That To not take personally all of this process that we see, that we observe, means to not judge our aversion, to not judge ourselves for the fact that aversion arises, because it does at times for most of us. To not grasp at, or to take sort of personal pride in the positive qualities that arise for us. There might be times when we're really feeling generous, or there's a sense of real kindness in our hearts or the ability to really let go and just seeing that these positive qualities are there and to honour them certainly but to not have to take them too personally because when we take these personally we're equally then bound when the negative, when the painful and the harmful and the unwholesome qualities the anger, the fear, the jealousy, the greed when they arise we're equally bound to take them personally and then we find ourselves 
sort of patting ourselves on the back when we like what we see in our experience, our inner experience, and then we have to slap ourselves on the wrist, or perhaps somewhat more strongly chastise ourselves when the experience that arises is what we feel is somehow not appropriate. To really understand that the experiences that arise, even the qualities of heart and mind, which we can cultivate and connect with, that these arise out of conditions, some of which we can cultivate and support, and yet which we are not in control of. If someone, for all the equanimity we've been working on, if someone came in here with a hammer and banged us on the toe with a big hammer, we'd probably find a reaction. That's the conditions that would happen for most of us, I suspect. To see that we don't need to take the content of our experience, inner experience or outer experience, as somehow defining who we are or limiting or confining our reality. That we actually have the capacity in this practice to rest in the seeing of the experience rather than the becoming that experience, rather than taking what is occurring for us, to us, within us and around us, rather than taking that as saying who I am or what I am, just seeing that is what is occurring. It's quite simple. It's just what's occurring. And yet there's this capacity to observe it. Resting in that capacity to observe it. This is our practice. And through that practice, what we actually start to see is that without identifying with those qualities, without identifying with them, there's a natural cultivation of the wholesome and beneficial. Because as we observe them without identification, we quite naturally recognize their value. And in recognizing their value, the tendency for them to arise within us is strengthened, is cultivated. And equally, there's a natural dissolution and a weakening of the negative and the unwholesome tendencies and habits that we find within us. Because as we just rest in seeing them without taking them personally, as we allow ourselves to acknowledge that they are there, but without being down on ourselves for that fact, quite naturally the recognition of the pain and the harm they bring to our experience and to others, that quite naturally weakens them, weakens the power that they have and the likelihood that they have of arising in our experience. So there's a rather a natural process that comes really just through the seeing, through seeing the effect of different qualities in our lives, in our hearts. And that it's a natural organic process in which the awareness itself is the transforming element. And so that learning to connect with and rest in that place of awareness, in seeing rather than being that experience, Learning to rest in that is an incredibly potent agent for transformation. We need to really understand, I think, that being awake is within our potential, is possible for us, that we do have the ability to be present. And in just one moment of being present, and I suspect for all of you, no matter how despondent you might be about your meditation practice, 
you will have been present for at least one moment today. And if you thought you weren't doing too well with only one moment, actually you're doing very well. Because that one moment tells you that this is possible for you. And really, what comes after recognizing that this is possible for you is another question. And really, is this our first priority? Is that question. We need to really be clear in our heart and our mind. Is being awake our first priority in life? And there's a, a nice story that's told about the uh, very um, enthusiastic and committed disciple who came to his guru and said to his guru, I want to see God. Above all else, I want to know God. And for this, perhaps we could translate for those who the language of God doesn't have so much resonance or doesn't connect, we could say, I want to know truth. I want to see the truth. And the guru replied to him, Hi, you really want to know God more than anything else? You really want to know truth more than anything else? Come with me. So he took him to the river. And then the guru pushed his head under the water and held it there for about a minute and a half. Then pulled him up by the hair and said, What do you want the most? And the disciples muttered, Give me air! I want to breathe! The guru replied, When you want to know God as much as you wanted that breath, come back. (coughs) And so, we might again just ask ourselves, or just reflect to ourselves, what is it that we really want from life? What would it be if our face was held in the water? Would it be that we wanted breath above all things? Would it be that we would still want to know the deepest truth of life? That we would still be more interested in our freedom than anything else? Because that's what it takes. And yet not to set that as some place which you have to get to. It's really a moment-to-moment thing which is expressed in the moment-to-moment willingness to be present in that moment. To make the effort to just come back. To just say, What's happening right now? So not some grand gesture of renunciation and all of that, but more that willingness, that steady and sustained willingness that recognizes what is truly important to us. And we're asked to awaken again and again, to explore what it means to wake up, because again and again we fall asleep. And every time we fall asleep, rather than looking at this as somehow a failure, we can actually honour the fact that we've woken up to recognise it. Because while we're still asleep, we don't even know we're asleep, so it's not a problem. It's only in the moment when we wake up that we think, oh, I was asleep. In that moment, we're not asleep. We're actually awake. We know what's going on. And what was going on was that we were asleep. So in that moment, to really honour that, moment of being awake, that sense of presence. But really the bottom line in our practice and in our life is that not being awake is the basis of our suffering. That in our sleep, in our unconscious acting out of conditioned habits and tendencies, we cause and we experience a great degree of pain a great degree that is not satisfactory. And that 
really in seeking the end of that. We're seeking to truly understand what it means to be awake. That this awakening is one in which the blindness, the ignorance which leads us into and entraps us in those tendencies that cause and habits that cause so much pain, this blindness and ignorance dissipates in the light of awareness, in the light of awakening to each moment and what each moment and every moment is revealing. The Buddha, not long after his enlightenment, was met by a a wandering holy man in India. And the Buddha was so bright, so radiant, that the man said, the, the holy man came up to him and said, you are so bright, so radiant. Are you a god? And the Buddha said, no. He said, are you a magician then? Or some kind of spirit? And the Buddha said, no. He said, are you a man? The Buddha said, no. You think there's not many options left. As did the, the holy man. He, well, what are you then? He asked. And the Buddha replied, I am awake. And really what our practice is an invitation to and an exploration of is what did the Buddha mean by that? To not define himself as a kind of being but as that quality of being awake. What is this speaking to us? What is this saying to us about what is possible for us? The Buddha was clearly a human being and yet this is not what he was defining as who he truly was. And so we might ask ourselves in this process, what is it that we awaken to? Well, clearly, we awaken to the, the nature and the movement of our inner life, our personal story and history, of the moods and the movements that carry us in our life that we need to learn to be familiar with, to not be at the mercy of our, our tendencies, of our strengths and our weaknesses, our vulnerabilities, and our susceptibilities. We need to learn, and we do see those because they come into our consciousness. We also come to understand the nature of all experience. In our, in our meditation we see that every experience comes and goes. Every one of them that comes has to leave. We see that they do it quite by themselves, that we don't need to do anything to make it happen. Our very life itself came without our bidding. will pass on, not at our choosing. It doesn't need us to make it happen. And we see that if we grasp that, if we try and control what is happening, that we experience suffering and pain. That this is the nature of all experience. That it's changing. That it's happening by itself. It's not who we are. It's not personal. And that if we grasp at it, it causes us pain. Much as if we grasp at a rope that's being pulled it pulls through our hands. We experience rope burn because it's moving and we can't hold on to it. So if we're wise, we let go. We understand that that's the nature of all experience. And yet we are also, in this process of awakening, are equally awakening to that in which all of the world of form and experience is unfolding. That, which in, which, that in which it is all held and yet which is not at all apart from it that we start to connect and understand, perhaps in a silent voice within us, more deeply what all that might mean. And in in our presence, in our willingness to just be 
where we are in the face of the very moment that we're in unblinkingly, unwaveringly in that we open to a touch to be touched by the deep truth of life the deepest truth of life to awaken to the nature of reality itself to discover the truth of our participation in life's natural freedom and to realize and quite effortlessly manifest a rather unstoppable kindness and caring for all of life for others, for ourselves and for all beings and this is the potential, this is the possibility of our practice so we can really again ask ourselves are we willing to let go of our pursuit of our preferences and our habitual sort of activities are we willing to let our habits and the wants of our conditioned mind actually let them be consumed in a fire in a passion we could say for being awake so can we sit quietly together for a minute or so please May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings abide in awareness. May all beings know a deep passion for being awake. 